And welcome back to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. And I'm Dee Harris, also Pastor Harris's son, and I'm happy to be back here with everyone as we kick off the last leg of the Beast from the East series. In this episode, Pastor Harris will teach on the Antichrist and the various aspects leading up to his identity being revealed. Now, you can look forward to the next and final episode of this series, where Dad will walk us through Armageddon and what he believes this final war will entail. There is no doubt that these final two teachings in this series are going to be extremely revealing. Now, before we continue forward, we want to ensure that everyone listening understands that, of course, biblical scripture is biblical scripture. No one can deny that. However, much of what Dad teaches throughout this series is his interpretation of what we simply do not know for fact. The truth is, no one knows. And the scripture tells us that, brother. Truth is that many people have many different beliefs regarding these scriptures and how they can be interpreted. Dad's teachings are simply that. They are his translations. But what I will say about our dad, Pastor Harris, is that he is the most brilliant man we have ever known. And after a lifetime of study, research, debate, history, pondering, and well, prayer. These points we are about to hear are his findings and his interpretations. All this to say, we thought it was only right to clarify this throughout this series of teachings. Furthermore, anyone is welcome to adopt his stance, support a different stance, or argue their own stance. Now, sadly, I'm not going to be very helpful in this debate. Brother, are you willing to debate dad's points for him? Oh, no way. I don't think so. Those are some big shoes to fill, and my feet aren't that big. But speaking of stances, Dad does touch on one of the long-time debated topics in Christian eschatology. It has to do with the Great Tribulation and when exactly the rapture will take place. These are broken up into several schools of thought. The pre-tribbers, the mid-tribbers, and the post-tribbers. To all of you out there listening, do you know which group you belong to? Well, Pastor Harris is about to point out which group he falls in line with and why. Pretty interesting stuff. I have to admit that I was new to this discussion, so this was pretty interesting for me. Yes, very interesting to say the least. I think I align with Dad as a pre-tribber myself, but I have to hand it to Dad that he does a fair job sharing the various stances and why each has merit. We also hear from Pastor Harris concerning things like the great parentheses and the two witnesses. He will also give us his thoughts on what are referred to as the young lions and who they might reference. Many other intriguing and otherwise cryptic scriptures will be discussed, and hopefully everyone will leave with a better understanding of these apocalyptic topics. So let's get on with the show. I hope that everyone enjoys the fourth teaching of Pastor Harris's Beast from the East series, ominously titled, The Antichrist. By going back to two verses we examined in our last study, and those verses are found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And I've asked that we put on the board the NIV because it's much easier to understand than trying to understand the King James Version. It says this, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back, the one who now holds it back. Now, the one who now holds it back. That's crucial, because in the King James, it says he, and that throws people for a loop. That is not the best translation of the Greek. This is, but the one who now holds it back 
will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Now the he goes back to the one who now holds it. So let's read it again. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way, the one who is holding it back. Okay, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And then, after what? After he is taken out of the way, the one that is holding lawlessness back, when he is taken out of the way, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Now, if you recall, I shared with you that the most important issue in interpreting those two verses correctly is this. The identity of the he in verse 7. Who is the one who must be taken out of the way before the evil one, the man of sin, the Antichrist, can or will be revealed? Now, there are two interpretations of the he among conservative scholars. First, the he in this verse is the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world, then then will the man of sin be revealed. Now, I for one do not accept this interpretation. I do not believe that he is the Holy Spirit. Now, why not? There are two reasons. For one thing, Jesus promised us in John chapter 14, verse 16, that the Holy Spirit will abide forever. That means once Jesus sent him, he's not going away from this earth again. He is going to abide here on this planet where Jesus sent him. Jesus said, I must go away, and when I go away, I will do what? I will send the Holy Spirit. So now we have the Holy Spirit making His appearance, and He's going to abide forever according to none less than Jesus Christ our Savior. Now for another thing, the issue of salvation is involved. You see, the Holy Spirit is the crucial player in bringing salvation. Now remember this, Jesus provided salvation, but the Holy Spirit is the one who implements it. After all, to be saved, according to John 3, 3, a person must be born of the Spirit. To be saved, a person must be indwelt by the Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. And then a person must be baptized by the Spirit to be saved, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. So without the working of the Holy Spirit, there is no salvation. Now the point is, since the book of Revelation makes it clear that countless millions of people will be saved during the seven years of tribulation, the Holy Spirit simply could not have been withdrawn. In the book of Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we see some of these people. Listen to what it says here. It says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb. And then down to verse 14. And I said unto him, this is John. He's looking at this. He's seeing this great multitude, this host of people. And he says unto the one on the throne, and I said, Sir, 
thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they who come up out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are people who were saved and then martyred during the tribulation period who died rather than take the mark of the Antichrist upon their forehead. That is why I do not accept the idea that the he in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8 is the Holy Spirit. Which brings me then to what I do believe, which is interpretation number two. That is, the he in this verse is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the position that I take. Now let's look at this verse again. Let's go back to chapter, uh, to 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2 and to verse 7. He says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back... Now, this spirit of the Antichrist, this lawlessness, is pressuring. It's pushing. This spirit of lawlessness, beginning in the time of Paul, it was there. Everything that this Antichrist is going to do was there in Paul's time. But it was, he was being restrained. There was a, there was a wall that was holding this man of sin back, this Antichrist. It says, for the secret power, this, this Antichrist has secret power, power that none of us know of. It's demonic. He says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Now, that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Taken out of the way. You wouldn't say that about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not going to be taken out of the way. Who is it that we know is going to be taken out of the way? It's the church of Jesus Christ. See, that's what this is referring to. Now, look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. When? After he is taken out of the way, then the Antichrist appears. Now, that's so clear, I don't know how anybody could possibly mistake it. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy at the splendor of his coming. So the church is going to be taken out. When Christ comes back, he is going to destroy the Antichrist in his second appearance, in the second appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I see it, the next two steps on God's eschatological timetable are these. First, the rapture of the church, and then secondly, the appearance of the Antichrist. Now, the rapture of the church is a thorny issue, beloved, and it's getting more thorny all the time, and it doesn't have to be. It's getting thorny because a bunch of people who have... who want desperately to go through the tribulation... They, you see... It's, it's, it's the welling up in us of works righteousness. There are people who simply want to prove to God they're good enough to go through it and not take the mark. Well, I don't know about you, but that has no appeal to me. I am a premillennialist, and I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And by that I mean this, that prior to the appearance of the Antichrist, the Lord will come for His saints. Now, I'm going to just, I want to diagram this on the board. I know some of you may have trouble seeing this board, but it's okay. I want to diagram this. Christ is going to come. Here He is. He's up here. Where is He? He's on the clouds, and here we are down here. He's going to come, and we're going to rise to meet Him in the air. And then for seven years, we're going to be here with Him. Here He has come. Now, get this. He has come for His saints. Seven years later, He's coming back to this earth, what we call the second coming, and He's coming back with His saints. 
One time he's coming for, the second time he's coming with. If you understand that, you will have no confusion with this issue of the rapture. So the reason I take this position is, first of all, the scriptures we just read, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But I'm also influenced by 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Now, I, want, I don't have that on the screen, so Lee, don't go nuts back there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. It says that we are to wait for His Son, that means God's Son, that means the Lord Jesus Christ, from heaven, whom He, meaning God, raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, beloved, the church is going to be delivered from this period, this seven-year period of wrath. That is what I believe, and that is where I stand. There, the, uh, there in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, believers are told to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. When Paul is writing, that wrath is yet to come. Are you with me? Okay, that, that's, that's the case in point. However, the other two positions say that this verse doesn't negate their positions. The mid-tribbers claim that the wrath of the Antichrist does not come until this great tribulation period begins. In other words, this period of wrath we know is divided into two parts, and the great part of it, the great tribulation, begins 42 months into this thing. And so they say, we believe the rapture takes place here, and therefore the church indeed does miss, miss the wrath. Now, the other group of people who are the post-tribbers, the people that believe that Jesus is not going to return until the end of the tribulation, and then they're going to be caught up for a very short period of time, 45 days, they claim with some authority, it, it, it's justifiably claimed, that those 45 days are known as the days of wrath. And they really are. And so they say the wrath that the church will be saved from is this last 45 days. It won't be saved from the remainder of this period of wrath that is coming upon the earth. Now, they both have a point. But neither of these positions can answer 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. At least not to my satisfaction. Now... Here's my biggest argument against either one of these other positions, and that is after Revelation 4, after chapter 4 of Revelation begins, the first three chapters are the introduction of the risen Christ and then the letters of the risen Christ to the seven churches in Asia. After that, the church is never mentioned again in Revelation until it returns with Jesus Christ. So that tells me that throughout all of the judgments, all of the trumpets, all of the bowls, all the pouring out of wrath, the riding forth of the riders, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that the church will not be here during any of that. The only time you ever see the church is when they're surrounding the throne of God as a part of that group known as the four and twenty elders or the twenty-four elders of the book of Revelation. Now, the mid-tribbers position is this. They, they say that believers in Christ will be raptured in the middle of the tribulation period prior to the great tribulation, and they base their argument on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, strangely enough, the same place I base mine on, chapter 2, but they pick out verses 1 through 4. And Lee, I don't think you have this one either. Now, if you want to follow me in your Bible, it'll be very helpful to you to keep up here. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I want to be as fair with their position as I can. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word, nor by letter as from us, that the day of the Lord is present. It's happening right now. Now we happen to know some churches that are teaching that. Jehovah's Witness, for one. I wouldn't call that a church, it's a sect. But it says, Be not troubled either by spirit or by word, nor by letter as from us, that the day of the Lord is present. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come the falling away first, and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, what they point to, they said, see here, the Antichrist is revealed first. It says in verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come the falling away first, and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now they say, you see there, I mean, the Antichrist comes first, then comes the rapture. My answer to that is so simple that it's embarrassing that anybody would not know the answer to this. The day, this is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day when he returns to earth. That's the day of the Lord. And yes, the Antichrist is going to be revealed seven years before this happens. So you see, right away, I have trouble with, with, uh, with that position. And, and then they also point to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Now this is an interesting portion of Scripture as well. And here's what this says. It says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four living creatures, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. Now, I want you to notice that, that in verse 11 it says that the elders are there. The elders. That's important. Saying, now here, here, here goes all these people in heaven. Here's what they say. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, Who are these who are arrayed in white robes? Now, who are the four and twenty elders? This is the church, the redeemed of the Old and New Testament. There is no question about that. They are already there. Now, another group of people arrives, and they said, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and from where did they come? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they who come up out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in the temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor the heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into the living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who are these people? These people are those who refuse to take the mark of the beast. These are they who are saved during the great tribulation period. It tells us who they are. It is not the raptured church. The raptured church goes here. These are the martyrs who die in the Lord during the tribulation who have accepted Christ and refused the mark of the beast and have been put to death. And at the last here, at the very last... Just before Christ comes back, then they are caught up 
resurrected to be with him. Somehow, these people have to be resurrected because they're dead. They are not going to enter into the millennial kingdom unless they are caught up. Therefore, they are resurrected and caught up at the last of the seven-year period. Does that make sense to you? Now, folks, I almost want to shut the recorder off now. I have heard from any number of sources that I'm way over your head and that you're not understanding a thing I'm saying. Now, if you're not understanding a thing I'm saying, let me know, and I'll try to work, work it so that you do, and try, try to, to, to make it clear. Now, <clears throat> once again, I believe that the next two events in God's timetable are the rapture of the church and the appearance of the Antichrist. Now, I understand that some people I really admire, like Kay Arthur, have now reversed this order, and they've accepted a mid-trib rapture. I believe they're wrong in doing this. I, I'm, I'm troubled that this is happening, but I understand it because of the grace message. There are people who now feel a need to prove themselves to God. They understand they're saved by grace, and now they want to prove. I don't want to prove anything to God. I have nothing to prove to God. I'm saved by grace, working through faith, and that not of myself. There is nothing I can contribute to this, and so I, for one, am going to go up at the beginning. You can go anytime you please, and so can Kay. Now, I continue to believe that the Antichrist will not be revealed until after the church is taken out of the way. Now, do we understand that? We're all together on that. Now, let me illustrate what I see happening in our world right now. And let me illustrate what I believe will be happening in the very near future. Okay, here we go. As to what I see happening now, I believe that we are living in what is often called the great parenthesis in history. Now, that's an important phrase I just gave you. The great parenthesis in history. What is a parenthesis? It's a gap. We are living in a gap in time, the great parenthesis in history. And what I mean by that is this. I believe we are living in the gap between Daniel's 69th week and Daniel's 70th week. So let's review the vision found in Daniel 9. There the angel Gabriel appears to the prophet Daniel when Daniel is in exile. Here he is in exile in Babylon. And Gabriel told Daniel that exactly 483 years of 360 days each would pass between the edict to rebuild the walls and the streets of Jerusalem and the appearance of Israel's Messiah and Davidic king, a span of 173,880 days. Now that edict, we happen to know the exact date it went out. It went out on March 14th, 445 B.C. And Jesus was proclaimed king on April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday, as he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Strangely enough, that time span equals 173,880 days. Daniel, 500 years before the fact, predicted the exact day when Jesus would be proclaimed king of the Jewish nation, the son of David himself. However, Daniel makes it clear in that vision that immediately after being hailed as king, the Messiah would be cut off. That is, he would be killed. And as we know, four days after being hailed as king, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was cut off. Now, the last chance Israel would have for at least 2,000 years to have a son of the great King David sit on the throne in Jerusalem was suddenly forfeited. It ended when the Jewish people cried out, We have no king but Caesar. When they made, listen, you better watch what you say with your mouth. God listens to our words. 
God listens to our words. They cried out, we have no king but Caesar. God said, okay, you can have Caesar as your king. And even more tragic for Israel was this. It brought an end that day when they made that statement, we have no king but Caesar. It brought an end to God's exclusive dealing with ethnic or national Israel. God would now begin to deal with what we call the spiritual Israel or the church. Now we call this new era, we call this time between week 69 and week 70, the church age. Now Daniel had not seen the church age at all in his vision, but that's to be expected. After all, his visions were concerned with the future of that nation of Israel. Nothing else. Remember that when you read Daniel. Daniel, and and listen, when you read the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, people get confused. That's not about you, and that's not about the church. If you read Matthew 25 and 24, and you try to fit the church into it, you'll go nuts because the church doesn't fit. That's not about the church. That vision, that, that... discourse of Jesus was about the nation of Israel, about Jews. Jesus said, I came to the Jews. I did not come to the Gentiles. His disciples asked him, Master, what's going to be the sign of your coming? When will these things come to pass? And then Jesus began to teach him things concerning his people and their people, Israel. So don't get into those chapters trying to read the church into it. Where do I fit here? You're not there for the Olivet Discourse. All of that happens after the true church of Jesus Christ is gone. Does that make sense? Daniel is the same way. Daniel is given a vision concerning the nation of Israel, not the church. So you will not find the church in the book of Daniel. Don't try to read it in. Don't try to see it there. It's not there. Now, the prophet never understood the fact that the 70th week of his vision... See, he just thought it would be 70 contiguous weeks. He just thought it was going to go from here right straight through here. That's how he saw it because he didn't understand that there would be a gap in time, a parenthesis in history. In fact, now that parenthesis is 1,971 years. Let me repeat. This parenthesis in history is the time in which God has been working in and through the spiritual Israel. And by that, I mean redeemed Gentiles and Jews. Don't you dare leave the Jews out of this. I'm not a racist and I'm not anti-Semitic. The church is both Gentile and Jew. Now, here's the way time works. Jesus died on the cross. Three days later, or he descended into paradise when they put him in the tomb. That's supposed to be a tomb there with an arrow coming out of it. He descends into paradise and he's resurrected. The time span is three days. After his three uh, three days in paradise, he is resurrected. And for 40 days, he walks around on the earth when he is ascended. Ten days later, God sends the Holy Spirit. And that begins the church age. Now, the cross is where the 69th week. When Jesus said, it is finished, the 69th week was ended. It was over. It was finished when Jesus was proclaimed to be king of the Jews. That ended it. And then 
the cross event right after that. And then we have suddenly with the coming of the Holy Spirit, we have the parenthesis in history. We have the church age, 1971 years at this point that we have been in this age of the church where God is working with the spiritual Israel, that is the redeemed Jews and the redeemed Gentiles. God is working with them both. On the day of Pentecost, God gave us a sign that this would be so. You can remember, can you not, that on the day of Pentecost, Glenn has told us about it every Sunday for uh, a couple of years now, how the priest would take the two loaves of bread from the first fruits of the wheat and wave them before God. But the strange thing about this bread is unlike any other bread that was seen before, this is leavened bread. This bread has sin in it. It is you and I. This is the church. One loaf of bread representing the Gentiles, one loaf of bread representing the Jews. We are together. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, no uh, bond or free, no male or female. See, all of those distinctions are wiped out in Him. We are one together in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be the church. Now, at the end of this church age, whenever it draws to a close, it may happen today, it may happen 10 years from now, but it's going to happen. The rapture of the church is going to take place. That is when the Antichrist, after the rapture takes place, the Antichrist appears, and the 70th week of Daniel then begins. And Daniel tells us in his, in, in, uh, in his revelation that it's divided into two periods of 42 months each, three and one-half years each. The tribulation, Jesus calls it, and then Jesus refers to the last part of it, the last three and a half years, the last 42 months as the great tribulation. And after that, we have the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, beloved, is the time frame in which the Bible works out our history. This is how that history will result. Now, as the diagram shows, the Antichrist will begin his quest for world dominion after the rapture when he initiates the events that are recorded for us in the book of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where we read the last part of this. Verse 27 And he shall confirm, now this is talking about the Antichrist, this is what it says he will do. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now there is a lot of stuff there, but what Daniel affirms here is that the 70th week will actually begin not when the church is raptured, but when the Antichrist authors a peace treaty or a covenant between the Palestinian people and the state of Israel. That's what begins the clock ticking on the 70th week. When that accord is signed between the new state of Palestine and the people of Israel, the clock begins to tick. Remember, this agreement will be implemented after the church is raptured. You're not going to see this happen. So let's look at what will occur during the first 42 months of this time known as the tribulation period. I've asked Lee to put it up on the screen for us. Here it is. This is my drawing, and so you'll just have to bear with it. But in those first three and a half years, you have a number of events. First, the peace treaty signed between the Palestinians and the Israelis. That's the very first thing that's going to happen. At that same time, as that peace accord, so-called peace accord, actually it's a war accord, when it is signed, the rider on the white horse rides out across the earth. The Antichrist introduces himself. Then the tribulation temple will be rebuilt on the Temple Mount. That's the next great event after the signing of the peace treaty. Then two witnesses are going to appear in Jerusalem. 
Those two witnesses will subsequently be killed some three and a half years later. The two witnesses will then be resurrected and ascend into heaven. And then finally, the Antichrist will violate the covenant and cause the sacrifices at the new temple to cease. And he will set forth the abomination of desolation. It's a terrible event that will come upon the earth. Now, I believe that this is all going to start. I believe we're going to have this first part of this uh, begin to, to unfold sometime in late 2005 or in early 2006. The Palestinian state will evolve from President Bush's roadmap to Middle Eastern peace being distributed this very day. The accords were handed to Abu Mazen. The accords were handed to Ariel Sharon this very day. This very day. Mark it down. This is going to be a sad day in the history of the world. As President Roosevelt once said, a day that will live in infamy. The world's going to be sorry for this day. But as I've said, ad infinitum and ad nauseum, this will not be a roadmap to peace. It will be a roadmap to World War III, to the Battle of Armageddon. As soon as this Palestinian state is established, you know what's going to happen. Weapons are going to start flowing in to that new Palestinian state. Oh, the United States is going to guarantee it won't happen. President Bush is going to assure the people there that this won't happen. What we're going to do is we're going to assign, guess who? United Nations to watch out. It's like the fox watching the hen house. They've never stopped anything yet, beloved. They're not going to stop this. Talk to me, children. Armament's going to flow in from Egypt and Iran and Syria through Jordan. Now, here's the key. This new state will be protected by the UN and the European Union. Listen, the European Union is so deliriously excited today. Why should they care about this little bitty nation, 35 miles wide at the widest part of it, and 170 miles long? Why should they care? What, what is Israel to Europe? Well, it must be a lot because they focus more attention and energy on Israel than they do anywhere else in the world. You see, this new state will be protected by the UN and the EU along with the Arab bloc nations. Now, Israel cannot respond to the terror attacks that are going to ensue. It will be, if they do, they will be attacking a sovereign entity. The Palestinians will attempt to reclaim Haifa and Jaffa using their recognized state status as a tool. Now, you know the reason why uh, Yasser Arafat would not sign the Camp David Agreement that Bill Clinton tried so desperately to work out. Uh, he should have taken his Bible with him. Uh, that he tried to work out is over the Palestinian refugee issue. You see, what they want is they want all those people who left and the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of all those people who left in 1948, they want them to be allowed to come back in to the state of Israel. If they do that, then the Palestinians will outnumber the Israelis. And because it is a democracy, they can vote the present people out of power. And then the whole thing becomes a Palestinian state. And they run the Israelis into the sea, just as they've said they would from the very beginning. Beloved... It's a bad sign. Now, at some point during this time, after this Palestinian state is formed, Israel's best friend, 
Now, who is that? It's us. The evangelical Bible-believing churches in this world will have been removed from this earth. When we're gone, who is there to stand for Israel? Israel will have few friends in the world except for some in the United States who need the Jewish voting bloc and campaign dollars. Meanwhile, the evil one, the Antichrist, who I believe will be the leader of Iraq, will step forward as a peacemaker. He will present a peace proposal to the Israelis and to the Palestinians to replace the roadmap that the United States and Britain have put forward. He will force the Palestinian leadership to accept his plan, and Israel will do so willingly, because things will by that time have become so bad in Israel that they would be willing to agree to anything that will bring peace, and they will accept the plan, and they'll do it willingly, instantly, beloved. The book of Ezekiel tells us, I could give you all of this if I had time. Instantly, the fighting will cease. Peace will reign. It will happen shortly after this agreement is signed. When the clock starts, right after that, peace is going to come. And it's going to remain for 42 months. Now, one thing I hope that you noticed about this treaty. According to Daniel 9 and 27... It says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, for seven years. Now, this, now, do you understand what this is saying to you? It's saying that the peace accord will not only be signed by the Palestinians and by the Israelis, it will be confirmed by many. Now listen to Pastor. Part of that many will be a new United Arab Republic. A ten-nation alliance all populated by Arabs and all worshipers of Allah. Oil wealth will make them a force to contend with. I believe that Britain and the United States will be co-signers of this agreement. They will guarantee, as I said a moment ago, the protection of Israel. And the major supporter of the new Arab Union will be the European Union, who by that time will be openly hostile to the United States. Do you see it heading that way? Don't, don't you see it heading that way? It's going that way as fast as it can go. France and Germany and Italy, these nations of the old Europe are now turning on the United States of America. They no longer consider us allies. Did you hear the news today? Did you hear today's news this morning? France and Luxembourg and Belgium are in talks right now to, for, to forge a military alliance outside NATO that omits the Brits. See, they're going to drive the British out of their union. We'd better be glad for that. Because in the scriptures, it talks about the islands who stand with Israel. There'll be something called the islands. I'll, I'll show that to you someday when, when we have enough time. The islands are going to stand with Israel at this time. When the going really gets tough, the islands will be there. And the young lions thereof. Now, the young lions of Britain is the United States and Australia. We're going to be there. Believe me. Now, back to the point. What will amaze the world about the new Iraqi peace accord is one clause. The leader of Iraq will agree to a provision and force it upon the Palestinians that will allow Israel to establish a place of worship on the Temple Mount. The entire world is going to be stunned by this. Because of this, the Israelis will accept this man with open arms 
Some of them will actually proclaim Him to be their Messiah. They're going to be fooled. The very elect will be fooled by this man. They'll accept Him with open arms. But after two years of international adulation, a problem will begin to occur in Israel. Two prophets will begin to make noise in Jerusalem. They appeared there soon after the church was raptured. Now the world doesn't know it, but these two men were sent to earth from heaven. And they are not fooled by the charismatic new leader of the Arab coalition. They know his true identity. They know his true identity. And they begin to warn the Israeli people that he is not their savior. In fact, they warn them that he is quite the opposite. He is their anti-savior. He is the anti-Messiah, the anti-Christ. And he is out to destroy them. At first, people mock the two witnesses. But then things begin to happen in the world that cause the people of Israel to begin to listen. No doubt they begin to read the prophets again. Especially Daniel. And when his armies invade three Arab states and he seizes control over these three Arab states... Israelis now know he is a little horn of Daniel's prophecy. They're no longer fooled either because they've got the book that tells the story. Israel, Israelis begin to turn to their true Messiah by the hundreds and then the thousands. Their faith is bolstered by the signs and wonders that the witnesses perform. Soon the entire world begins to watch the events. CNN just can't stay away. They're going to be there to shoot these guys. And the world is going to hate them. These fanatics that are disturbing the peace that Antichrist has brought to the world. We've struggled internationally for this peace. This man has brought it and now these two guys are upsetting everything. The Antichrist begins to feel that his plan to bring the entire world under his influence, under the influence of Islam, is being threatened. So he sends some thugs to kill the two witnesses, which they do. Turn with me to the book of Revelations, chapter 11 and verse 7. Revelation 11 and 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony... The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. This is the Antichrist. He is so demonic that he's even called the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. She'll make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Now let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves, who are these two witnesses who come down to this earth from heaven? Who are they? Well, three names are often put forward. Elijah, Moses, and Enoch. Now, before I tell you my candidates, let me establish the criteria we must use to identify them. First, they must be men that come from heaven. Secondly, they must be men who possess extraordinary powers. Thirdly, they must be men whose ministry lasts for 42 months. They must be men who fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 4. And they must have never died. That's the criteria. Now... The identity of the first witness is obvious. This is Elijah the prophet. We know his story. We know how he was caught away into heaven while he was still alive in a fiery chariot. God took him away. 
His servant Elijah asks him for a double portion of his blessing. You remember he cast down his mantle to him. Interesting story, but we know that he never died. And we know that he will someday return to this earth because according to Malachi 4.5, we read this. Whoops. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, what did I tell you the day of the Lord was? This is the great and terrible day of the Lord. That is His return. The great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, so we know that that first witness, there's no question that the first of the two witnesses is Elijah. Can you imagine him preaching? Nobody's going to know who he is. Of course, this world today, you know, you tell somebody, a guy that left this earth years ago is going to come back. Everybody's going to say to you, are you nuts? You know, people are going to say, I think that's Elijah. No, you idiot. Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? It's not Elijah. That's some raven lunatic. I, I'll never forget uh, when I was over in, in Israel with, with, uh, with my son, Deke. We were at uh, Tabagah, which is uh, where the loaves and the fishes is memorialized. It's not where it happened. It's where it's memorialized. And this guy comes walking down the road, and he's wearing a long white robe. He's got a long beard, long hair. He's got a staff in his hand. And he's walking along. He's feet are absolutely filthy. And Deke said, Dad, it's Jesus. And I said, no, it's not Jesus. <laughs> see, that's the first thing. You see, our rationalistic minds, people are going to say, you know what? The scripture says that's probably going to be Elijah. Oh, that's not. Are you out of your mind? It's just some nut wearing a white robe. You know, I mean, that, that's just, that's how we are, isn't it? I mean, we just, we just, we, we doubt first. Now, those who believe that Moses was the second witness usually point to the following facts. They say, first, he appeared with Elijah on the Mount of the Transfiguration. He's come back onto the Mount of Transfiguration. He also, during his lifetime, had the power to call down plagues, and the witnesses are also going to do that. They're going to call plagues from the sky. The problem is, the second witness cannot be Moses because Moses died. According to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, I'm not going to try to find that. It says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. So therefore, we know Moses died. Now, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so therefore, we know that the witness must have not died. So, that leaves only one person who meets every criteria, a man who never died, and that is the man Enoch. Now, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, we have this, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, here's a man that was raptured out of this world during the pre-diluvian, prior to the flood. Enoch was raptured. He went to be with God. Now, according to the way I understand the Scripture, Enoch is going to come back. And here, both he and Elijah will fulfill Hebrews 9.27. They're both going to taste physical death, which they must do. Now, in the book of Revelation again, chapter 11 and verse 7, remember what it says here. 
And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. So they will die. Now believe me, the death of these two witnesses will be a reason for the enemies of Israel and the enemies of her God to have a celebration. Did you know what the scripture says? That when they see them dead in the streets, they're going to exchange presents. It's going to be like Christmas. The world's going to celebrate that these hard-nosed, angry Filthy men are going to be gone and they're not going to trouble this peaceful world anymore. And so the the entire world will know they're dead. The Antichrist will see that the images of their bodies are televised to the entire world. Their bodies will be left in the streets for three and one half days for a fact. Just leave them lying there. But believe me when I tell you, the joy will be short-lived. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. And after three days and a half, ooh, and after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them who saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Wow. Wow. Now, I can assure you of this. The Antichrist is not going to be impressed. The Antichrist will be enraged, as a matter of fact, at this turn of events. The Israelis, once they see these men rise up on the streets of Jerusalem, and once they see them caught up into the air, demonstrations are going to break out all over the land of Israel. The peace accord is going to be discarded. And the Antichrist knows that he must act. He too discards the treaty agreement and he prepares the Arab armies for war. Israel is now in grave jeopardy. You see, the United States can't mobilize instantly. This man is being prepared for this moment from the day of his birth. In a very short time, this man has gained enormous power. As a matter of fact, in chapter 13 of Revelation, in verse 5, it says this, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy, and power, dunamis, was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now, for three and one half years, he is going to be an enraged beast. He's going after the state of Israel hook and tongs. And the way he is given his power is described in detail by Daniel. But if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel, chapter 11, verse 36. Oh, it's up there. Great. So you don't have to turn to all of it. Daniel 11, verse 36. Here's what it says. And the king shall do according to his will. This is talking about the Antichrist. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that which is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the gods of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the god of fortresses, and a god whom his fathers knew knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the stronghold 
and the strongest fortresses with a foreign God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory and shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north will come against him like a whirlwind and the chariots with many horsemen and with many ships and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass through them. He shall also enter into the glorious land. What is the glorious land? Here we go. And he shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now this is talking about the state, the Emirate of Jordan. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Egypt's going to catch it too. Who does Egypt ally itself with? The United States. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. He's going to have new allies. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to sweep away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Now notice, we're told that he will invade the glorious land. Israel will quickly be crushed by this huge army. And when Jerusalem falls, he goes straight to the Temple Mount. He commands the new Jewish priests to cease offering sacrifices. And Daniel writes this. Look again at Daniel 9.27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, that is, halfway through, 42 months, he shall cease the sacrifice and the oblation, and for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, once the sacrifice is ceased, he will do something truly odious. Listen to how Daniel describes it in Daniel 11, 11 again. And the king of the south shall be moved with anger, and he shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north, and he shall set forth a great multitude... But the, but the multitude shall be given into his hands. That's not the verse I want him. But anyhow, let me say this uh, from Daniel 9.27. He does an abominable things, thing, something Daniel calls the abomination of desolations. Now, if there's anything I've tried to teach this church for 21 years now, it's been this. God will always show his people something in the physical realm before he reveals it to them in the spiritual realm. He always does that. The second thing he always does is he fulfills prophecy twice. He always will do it twice. Why? So that we can't say we didn't understand. God will always do that. Now, let me give you this example. The first and only time the altar of the temple was ever abominated was in 165 B.C. by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was a Greek uh, offspring of, of Antiochus, the general who served under Alexander the Great, who was given the land of Syria. This is his fourth son, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. He gave himself the name Epiphanes, revelation of God. He said, that's who I am. I am a God. So he comes to Jerusalem. In anger, he comes because they have refused to accept the Hellenistic agenda. Antiochus caused the uh, temple sacrifices to cease, and he sacrificed a pig on the brazen altar. Now, evidently, the Antichrist will do something very similar. He will cause the sacrifices to cease, and then he will do an abominable thing. We're not told what it is. Perhaps he will set up a statue of himself on the Temple Mount, like Antiochus IV did. Revelation seems to suggest that. 
But what interests me most about this is something I discovered recently. I just want to share this with you. I'm through. But I just want to share this with you. I was messing around the other night with the formula that I shared with you from Ezekiel 4, 5, and 6 and Numbers 14, 34. You know that one day often equals one year in prophecy. And I was trying to see how that works out in this case. So I searched Jewish history for the first time a Gentile caused the offering on the altar in Jerusalem to cease. Now, this wasn't the first time when Antiochus did this. The second time, uh, that's the second time. The first time was in 583 B.C. That's when the Babylonians stopped the sacrifices. Well, that got my attention. As I worked, I found that if we take Daniel's statement that 1290 days would elapse between the cessation of the sacrifices and the abomination of desolation, and 1290 equals 1290 uh, uh, years, those 1290 days equals 1290 years, then if you begin to count 1290 years from 583 B.C., it comes out in the middle of 688 B.C., now that bowled me over. I just about fainted. Why? What's so important about the middle of 688 BC? It was the same year that the Caliph Omar began to build the Dome of the Rock over the spot of the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. July of 688, he laid the cornerstone, the Dome of the Rock. You know what's under the Dome of the Rock. It is the rock upon which Abraham came and built an altar unto the Lord and prepared to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. You remember that? Isaac said to him, Father, I see the altar, I see the sticks, I see the fire. Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham, in a spirit of prophecy, spoke to his son and he said to him, Son, God will provide the lamb the lamb. Suddenly he raised his, his dagger to plunge it into the heart of his son. An angel stilled his arm and he looked over in the thicket and there was a ram caught by the horns. Abraham went, sacrificed, took his son off the altar and sacrificed the ram. But he said something very important. He said, God will supply the lamb. That lamb, you could take a rock from the dome of the rock, and if you can throw real good, you can hit Calvary with it. It's a part of the same chain of hills. But that's where, when David came to build his temple, he purchased the threshing floor from Arunah the Jebusite. And what David actually said to him, I want your threshing floor because that is the place where Abraham built his altar. That is the only place in the world that is sanctified for an altar unto the Lord. And so, what happens? The Muslims, as they do everything, come, steal what isn't theirs, build a mosque, which is the abomination of desolation. Builds a mosque over the Holy of Holies of the temple of God. You see, God is telling us something here. He's telling us that at the end of this 42 months, the Antichrist is going to be so desperate, so angry, so filled with hatred and wrath, knowing that his time is short, that he's going to do something desperate in the court, the house of God. That will bring the Lord Jesus Christ back 
for the battle of Armageddon, the final battle of the ages. You and I will be with him. See, he's going to come for us, and then he's going to come with us. We're going to purge this world of all of its sin and unrighteousness. Next Wednesday night, Pastor will be doing the battle of Armageddon, and we'll be looking for you then. Okay, guys, thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Aerial Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at aerialministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Aerial Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit aerialministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future.